as I said, it's, it's not very glamorous work that I do. I sometimes write articles about the best access to use, you know, or I translate a product description of a motorcycle helmet. Um, two things that are not on the top of my hobby list, but that's what I do for a living and there is a demand for it. I'm very good at it and that allows me to do something that I enjoy and live a life that I want to live. This is the Seasonals Podcast, a show where we talk to people living the seasonal lifestyle. We take an in-depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way. Vicky Taylor today. How are you today, Vicky? Hi, Joey. It's good to be with you. I'm really good. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. It's great to talk to you finally. You wrote an article in the Quarterly Magazine that was not only well-written, but the pictures were beautiful as well. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Joey. Um, it's not that difficult when you love the destination you're writing about. That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> so where where are you today? I am sitting uh, in Stockholm. It's uh, about ten thirty in the morning, and there is obviously a Corona panic happening everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. I was I was just looking at a bunch of pictures of like famous locations that are like completely empty now. Like a picture of Mecca, and there's just there's like one dude standing there. Yeah, I mean, it's not bad in Sweden at the moment, but that's not stopping people from buying a whole lot of toilet rolls. And I'm due to fly back to Japan early April, and we'll just have to see how that goes. Yeah, hopefully it'll go well. I am flying through Beijing as well, so double, let's see how that goes. (laughs) So you're visiting Sweden now. You live most of the time in Japan. Um, what What is it exactly that you do throughout the year? Well, I have my own business online. So I mainly do translation work between Swedish and English. And I also write articles like for the seasonals. Um, and that's what I do. It means that it doesn't really matter where I am. So I just travel after the warm and nice climate just chasing the endless summer, basically. Yeah, I'm doing the opposite of uh, what people that are looking for ski slopes are doing. Gotcha. So I know, I think I know a little bit about like translation work. And what I know is usually you want the native language to be the one you're translating into. Yes, um, I'm bilingual though. Uh, my dad's English and my mom's Swedish. So I translate both ways. And it is probably one of the most unglamorous kinds of work you can do. It's time consuming, it demands a lot of focus, and you pretty much work from your pajamas most days. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. Well, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
So what what is it that you're usually doing? Is it like commercials or websites? Is text mostly? I've done a few book projects. They're the most fun, uh, but I'd say most of the kind of translation work that comes through is the stuff that you take for granted, product descriptions or website articles, just the, the stuff you see in everyday life and you don't really think about it. So that's what I do for a lot of different smaller businesses. So a lot of like ad copy type stuff. Yeah, pretty much. I've worked with, for example, Baby Shop. Um, I don't know if you know them, but they're pretty famous, especially um, for children's clothing and toys. No, I've never heard of them. Yeah, they're pretty famous, but maybe you don't have kids, Joey. Uh, Not that I know of, nope. (laughs) Well, yeah, well, people, well, parents would probably know about them. Um, So I've also worked with some casino sites uh, because apparently online gambling is growing in popularity. And I've done a lot of stuff for e-commerce, different kind of web shops and things like that. Yeah, the online gambling is going to get even bigger too. America is pushing to legalize it in a bunch of sports. Oh, really? I guess I'll have more work to do. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) So what is life like in Japan for a Swedish slash British person? I live in the countryside uh, in Japan near Mount Fuji. So I would say I am probably the only Westerner with blue eyes uh, in a very large area. And that means that you do get some extra attention when you go to the shops, you walk down the street. um, You just get more attention because you stick out. Um, But people are very friendly. I live in a very, very local area. So everyone knows everyone. And... Yeah, it's it's nothing like the life portrayed in big cities like Tokyo. Is it more like, because I've never been to Japan, I've been to Thailand and a little couple other places over there. But in my mind, when I think rural Japan, I think more of like the older animes, like the the animes that are kind of showing like the 1800s or something. You're, you're not far off. There is a very famous uh, anime movie called My Neighbor Totoro. Have you heard of that? Yeah, yeah. I just watched that recently, actually, for the first time. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good uh, image of how I live. I live in a wooden house. It's kind of on top of a mountain. I've got a forest behind the house. We've got rice paddies. Um, and that's just, that was my dream image way before I even went to Japan for the first time. That was the kind of life that I wanted. And I just fell in love with this little town where I'm living now. You, you dreamt it and then you built it. I didn't build it. I bought it. <laughs> well, I mean the life. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. I, now I'm imagining sort of a house moving castle. That's my favorite Miyazaki. Like your house getting up through the fog and walking closer to the lake or something. I mean, it's, you know, not that dramatic, but it's also (laughs) not that far off because when you live in the countryside, you're much closer to the seasons. So you see the shift in season a lot clearer. Um, We see the rice paddies go yellow in autumn. We see the snow at the top of Mount Fuji 
in summer, um, everyone takes their futons, like their mattresses and, and duvets, and they put them on the balconies to air them out. And there are just certain things that you do in Japan for the different seasons. And when you live that locally in a small area and in the countryside, you're just much closer to nature and, you know, everything that's going on. Right. It will take me through a, a day, like sometime in the year, pick a day and like take me through maybe one that you leave the house and don't stay in your pajamas working all day. But, and then like maybe include some of the interesting people in the little town you live in. Well, the weekends would be the time that I am out and about. And in summer, it gets really warm and humid. Uh, e- even up there in the mountains. And when I wake up, the first view I've got is out to the cedar forest. Um, and it's just this gorgeous view of trees that are just so tall, you can't see the end of them. And the sun is just filtering through the branches. And that's what I wake up to. And I go downstairs and I make some breakfast. I go into my tatami room which is a Japanese style room uh, with straw flooring. And I sit on the floor with a low table and I open up all the balcony doors and I just sit there and I have my breakfast looking out over the valley. Um, And it's just so peaceful. You can hear the birds and just so, so peaceful. And when I'm ready to head out, I just step outside usually meet my neighbors uh, doing some kind of gardening work or sweeping leaves which is a thing in Japan um, or recycling also a very big thing and I take my jeep um, and I just drive and the drive from my house down to the town is just passing through the road passes through a forest so it's like this massive tunnel And on one side, you've got uh, the mountain wall and you've got the cedar trees. And on the other side, you've just got bamboo trees all the way down. And as you're driving down, it's just this lush greenery. It's like being in a a rainforest is that kind of greenery. And as you come down and you come out from this tunnel, you get a view over the town. We don't have any tall buildings, no skyscrapers, nothing like that. Just independent, small houses. And you just drive through them. You see the rice paddies stretching out and it's just gorgeous. And that's pretty much what I see anytime I leave my house. That sounds like a great, great view. I mean, there's also a lot of cool stuff to do. I mean, we've got waterfalls. We've got paragliding, which I'm still trying to find a chance to try out because um, it would just be amazing to just soar up there with Mount Fuji. Um, so there, there's a lot to do if you like nature. So I usually spend some time driving to the beach in the summer, or if it's spring, we have a lot of nice locations for cherry blossoms. We've got lakes and there's just, it doesn't really matter what season it is. It's very picturesque. So, like I'm, I'm imagining. So when I went to um, Thailand, I the second time I was there for like a month, hanging out with my friend who's Thai, and I would meet these characters when I'm walking near his house that would be super happy to like come out and talk to me, and 
because they would see me every day. And I think most tourists with blue eyes, like you said, they see and they're like, oh, I'll never see him again. But me, they saw me like a few times and they would come out and talk. And I got this like cast of people that I really enjoyed interacting with. Do you have a few of those in your town? Yeah, I mean, I've got I've got some very good uh, Japanese friends and I'm pretty close with my neighbor. I can't honestly say how old he is, but he's probably 80 years old or something. Um, and and we just get along really well. And he's taught me a bit about bonsai trees. Um, in Japan, there are a lot of boundaries. So a neighbor does not usually go into another neighbor's house. Like even if you invite them in, they usually wouldn't step in. And we don't have that. He just kind of strolls into my house. Um, and that's very strange for a Japanese person. He only does it with my house, maybe because I'm a foreigner. Um, but but we, we get along really well. I think he's probably the person I speak to the most in my little community. And then I've got some, some local friends as well. We do game nights uh, where we eat dinner and we just chat and play games. Or we travel together around in Japan as well. What is something that you got from your Swedish heritage that either mixes well or doesn't mix well in Japan that maybe would be foreign to an American? I, I didn't think about this until I got back to Sweden a week ago. But when I'm going somewhere here, I'm, I'm on the metro and I get off and I'm walking through the station in Sweden and in Stockholm or specifically people are very conscious of their personal space no one will bump into you if they can avoid it people will go out of their way to twist like you know like a matrix movie to just kind of avoid your shoulder as you're passing them and that's really nice that's i like that i I like my personal space whereas in japan more specifically like in big cities like tokyo Again, there's a lot of people and you walk through a station, it doesn't even have to be that crowded. The people just don't care if they bump into you. So you're walking down the station and you're just going to get someone's bag into your knee and someone's going to hit your shoulder and they just kind of keep moving because that's normal for them. That's, that's you know, how, how their everyday life looks like. And all I can think is like, oh, not again. And it's just Every time it just annoys me, <laughs> but you don't get that here. You just do not get that here. Yeah. So you, you own a house in Japan, you spend um, a good portion of the year there in the, the warmer, you try for the warmer months. And then the rest of the year you're traveling, trying to chase that sun some more. What is, what is the usual trip like that look like for you? Yeah, so I, I try to do different trips each time um, between three and six months. I've done Asia twice. Um, I've done some scuba diving trips to Okinawa. I've been diving in Thailand. I've done some volunteer work with tigers in Thailand. I've done Thai boxing. Um, I've backpacked. And the latest big trip I did was a one-year campervanning trip. And now I'm just kind of thinking about something new for this year. Tell me about the camper van trip. Oh, it's, it's, it's one unbelievable trip. I'll tell you that. Um, I actually had a burnout 
that's how it started. I overworked and I had a burnout and I decided to not renew my work contract in Japan. And instead we traveled a bit and then we went back to the UK, me and my uh, partner. And we stayed there for a while. And while I was recovering, I kept thinking how fantastic and idyllic it would be to just have a camper van or a caravan and just park it by the ocean somewhere away from people, away from everything. And I just couldn't shake this image. Um, I somehow convinced him that it was a great idea to buy a camper van. He was not really into the idea, but uh, we got a camper van, a small one. Uh, we named him Luffy. He was just barely five meters long. Um, the living is not a living room, but, but the main area was just where you would sit and it would fold into a bed. And then we had a super tiny kitchen and a toilet shower. So we had everything we needed and we left uh, end of July. And we traveled for a year. We started in England, did a trip up to Sweden for a wedding. And then we went all the way down uh, and we went through the Netherlands, Denmark, all the way down to the very tip to Gibraltar. And then we rounded it and went right back up again, went through Italy, crossed over to Croatia and got some car trouble along the way. And somewhere along there, we encountered a lot of bad weather. And we decided to start heading back. Uh, we had a car MOT scheduled in. So we just did a full year around a pretty big chunk of Europe. And I think we went around above and under the Alps. Uh, we, we went around there quite a few times. How much do you think it, the whole trip, the whole, like the whole year cost? I think we spent about five. I want to say about £5,000 on the car, on the vehicle itself. It could be a bit more because we got new tires and, and solar panels and stuff like that. And we spent just over €1,200 a month. So it really just depends on the kind of lifestyle you want to have. We did not do very many restaurants, but we cooked a lot. But on the other hand, we bought a lot of nice food, fresh fruit, you know, nice meat, uh, freshly baked bread. And we spent quite a bit of money on petrol because we had an older vehicle. You could do it a lot cheaper if you don't mind eating simpler foods. And if you've got a good vehicle, you could spend a lot more money doing it as well, because we didn't really spend a lot of money on the campsites. Um, and some people like nice campsites with the pool and the showers and the washing machines. So it just would really depend on how you would do it. But I'd say you could camper van and spend about the same in a month as you would in your normal everyday life, paying rent, you know, having a car and so on. Right. Yeah, that doesn't sound too bad. I mean, it's like 17 grand for a whole year of existing in the camper van and doing a circle around Europe and waking up on the beach and all that. Yeah. I mean, you do need some margins. We had, we had a few <laughs> incidents um, with the car. We were driving up a mountain. I I'd, I'd say we were driving up the Alps and 
we were very close to our final destination for the night and we had some really big issues with our clutch and we just couldn't make it up and we were in the middle of nowhere it was pitch black outside and we just had to turn around and we were just coasting down the mountain um we had so much problems and we turned to two or three different mechanics and they all just turned us down saying no sorry we can't help you here and in the end we did find a mechanic that that helped us and we got there and the car the car was bunny jumping and we just barely made it there and we got there and we said look we're not leaving you have to help us we are literally not leaving because we cannot move anymore our car will not move again <laughs> and they did this amazing job they just swapped out the whole thing in less than 24 hours they took out the whole engine they got the part they swapped the part they put the engine back in and we were just good to go so i know you were burnt out was there a goal for the trip not per se. It, it was a chance for me to experience something positive and just start to feel joy and excitement about things again after being very worn out. And it was just a really big plus that that had always been one of my dreams. I always wanted to camper van through Europe. So I was a bit disappointed that we didn't we didn't really get to finish uh because we did end up selling the car a bit earlier than planned because of car problems. But I would have really liked to see Turkey and Greece and, and the east side of Europe a bit more. So I think one day I might go for that second half of that trip. So it was a good good start, but there's still still some to finish. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a quitter, so I, I'm definitely going to finish that loop one day. Yeah, it's good. It sounds like you got quite a bit of the loop out of the way also. So now you can yeah. just hit the great spots. Yeah, and next time is East Europe, which is, I believe, cheaper in, in a lot of ways. So fingers crossed. Yeah, much cheaper in my experience anyway. <laughs> yeah, uh, the petrol thing is the biggest expense by far. You've been traveling since about... 2014 how did how did all this start yeah that's right um when I was 19 I that was about 2010 I decided to go to Spain for a year as an au pair and I lived with a family where both the parents were language teachers and even back then it was my dream to live in Japan not to go to Japan but to live in Japan so while I was there, that was my first big trip alone, I, I started thinking that I actually really did want this to happen. I didn't want it to just be this dream, just saying that I wanted to do it, but not really doing it. So I started making my plans already then. So when my year finished uh, in Spain, I went back to Sweden. I enrolled straight into university. I did three years to get a bachelor's degree, which you need if you want to have a chance to get a working visa in Japan. And the same day that I finished university, I had a one-way ticket out from Sweden. And I did six months of backpacking in Asia before I finally arrived in Japan on the 31st of December in 2014. And that was just an amazing way to end the year. So is that, that's our New Year's. Is that their New Year's as well? 
they they do celebrate New Year's, uh, not like we do. No big fireworks. It's more like a family family holiday where they eat certain specific dishes and they spend time with the family. Um, no champagne, no toasting, and no fireworks like we would celebrate. So a little more subdued. Yeah, and I have a I have a very good friend in Japan. He lives in Tokyo. But his hometown is where I currently live. So on the 1st of January, the very next day, he brought me to his hometown because a lot of people go back home uh, for New Year's. And we stayed the night at his parents' house, an older traditional Japanese house. And the next morning, very early, about 6 a.m., we just stepped out into the cool air. And that was the first time I got to see Mount Fuji. And the sky was just clear and blue. And there was just this cap of snow over the mountain. And I remember saying then, I'm going to live here. And everyone just thought I was crazy. Like, why would you live here? Of all the places in Japan, no one wants to live here. It's in the middle of nowhere. So no, <laughs> no, this, this is where I want to live. Um, so I stayed in Tokyo and I focused my, my job search for smaller schools in that area. And I got an interview at a small conversational school um, where, where the owner was Canadian. And I remember during the interview, he was asking me a bit about why I came to Japan and what I wanted to do. And I said, I want to live here and I want to buy a house. And he just kind of waved me off and laughed a bit thinking, yeah, she's a bit crazy, but we like her. Um, <laughs> and while I was waiting to hear back if I got the job or not, I did actually reject all the other job interviews I got. I was just determined that this was going to be it. Um, and I got the job. I got the job and I moved there. I lived in a small apartment and I worked as an English teacher for six months before I finally bought the house, moved in and that was just like the start of my dream. Yeah, I'm, I'm imagining that that moment in the morning when you're looking out at Mount Fuji and you've completed the quest that young Vicky put you on. And then you were deciding f what future Vicky was going to do in that present moment. Yeah, it's just, you, there are a lot of beautiful views out there. I've seen some amazing places, but you never get tired of seeing Mount Fuji. I don't think you realize how majestic it is. We've got one of the hiking trails starting from, from our little town. So we're just at the base of the mountain and you're just standing there and it just it takes up the whole sky when you're looking at it and you could just look at it forever. Um, and I still very often take walks around just reminding myself that this is where I want to be. So in a lot of your stories, you say, this is what I wanted to do. And then I did it. I wanted this job and I got it. I wanted to live in Japan and I did it. You're very good at taking a, a bigger goal and making it successful. What does it look like when you zoom in? Like, do you have sort of smaller ways of achieving your goals like day by day or step by step ways of looking at them? I'm very goal oriented. I know there are people that say, oh, no, as long as I'm happy. But uh, I'm very goal oriented. And 
when I was younger, no one really believed in me. I got to hear a lot of things like you can't just move to Japan or you can't just buy a house or, you know, pretty much everything I wanted to do was something you couldn't do. Um, I think that was one of the big things that motivated me, just proving people wrong. Um, I always set a big goal, um, the, the dream or the, the thing to fight for. And then I break it down from there. So when it came to Japan, the goal was to live in Japan. And the next step is to look at how can I make that possible? What do I need to make that reality? In my case, it was a bachelor's degree. So I had a chance to get a job because you can't get anywhere without a job and a visa. So that was my first goal, finding out how I could make that happen. And once I realized, okay, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to have to go to university and it's three years out of my life. That's, that's a long-term investment. Uh, so that, that's hard for, for someone to do when you're young and you just want to do it now. But some things you just have to plan for, you know, in advance and you just have to be patient. So while I was studying, I also had a lot of extra work, making sure I had the funds to to leave as well. I didn't want to spend even more time working to save up once I finished school. So I made sure that I was ready to go on the day I finished. Um, so it's just about taking that big goal and finding out what you actually need in reality for that to not just be a dream, but to be achievable. And once you know that, you can break it down into a time frame of what you need to do, how and when, and you just do it step by step. For me, I had a three-year plan, but I also had a one-year plan at a time just to get through it. So while I was working on that big three-year plan, I planned for a backpacking trip. I got my driver's license and I did a lot of those kind of things that I knew would help me along the way. To, you know, when I was finally ready to go. Um, and I think a lot of, I think a lot of people could do what they want to do. It's just about the commitment of following through on it. Do you write a lot of this stuff down or do you work it out in your mind mostly? I, I'm a really big fan of to-do lists and lists in general. So I, I definitely write stuff down. Um, it starts out in my head. Uh, it doesn't always make sense at the beginning. It's just I get this idea, sometimes from nowhere. And the more I think about it, the more I realize that, yep, 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 no, this is doable. This, this, I'm going to do this. And then from there on, I start putting it down on paper. Uh, I use smart goals a lot. And I'm a big fan of New Year's resolutions. I treat them more as, as goals for the year. And then I break that down monthly because I find that that helps me to stay on track to where I want to be going. Whereas if you don't have any guidelines, you know, nothing to go after, it's very easy to stray and get distracted and start doing other stuff. There's nothing wrong with that, but it makes it a lot harder to reach that goal. What was your New Year's resolution this year? Well, this year, I've always got a few, but one of them is to pass a Japanese level test. Um, they divide it up from N5, which is the lowest level, to N1, which is the highest level. 
and it's a reading and listening test with a lot of kanji. So it's, it's quite difficult. And I am determined to try the M3 test this July. And that is actually a level and a half above my level currently. So it's a, a very ambitious goal. And it's probably going to involve a lot of last minute studies. Um, but that's a goal I set up for myself to make sure that I don't get lazy with my Japanese. If you get comfortable after a while and I have become comfortable and this is just my way of pushing it to make sure that I just don't stay here, you know, not changing. And like the top one in one, that's all the way up to like scientific or medical. You could pretty much read a newspaper if you had the N1 level. So you could read politics and all of this stuff. I don't really read the news like that. So for me, I, I, I don't think I would ever need the N1 level because I don't work in a Japanese company. But maybe in a year or two, I'd look at the N2 I'd, I'd probably be happy at that level. But for this year, I'm a, aiming for the N3. How many languages do you speak? Three and some. I speak Swedish, English, and Japanese. And I get by with my Spanish. It's very rusty. I don't use it often enough, but I get by. But I did speak Finnish growing up. And I don't know any of it anymore, unfortunately. I don't know how much you interact with Americans, but do you ever get annoyed that they only speak one language? It's not just Americans. It's Brits as well. And yes, I do. N not, not because they only speak one language, but my, my ex-boyfriend always relied on, on me for communications and translating everything that was going on. And that gets old very quickly. <laughs> yeah. But it, it helps like it helps you uh you learn right that's <laughs> that's yeah. always the the way that i phrase it to my friends that i'm with i'm like oh well since you're doing all the speaking you're learning faster <laughs> i i guess you can look at it like that but i mean the more languages you learn the easier it becomes to learn new ones it's like cracking the code for how to learn a language and most Europeans speak at least two languages. Three is, you know, the minimum usually. Um, so it's quite different for us. We just take this for granted that, you know, we understand and we speak a lot of languages. As, as a Swede, I also understand Norwegian and I can read Danish. And Dutch is not that far off either. So I, it just opens a lot of doors. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've got some, some Spanish. If the person I'm talking to only speaks Spanish, then I can, I can speak Spanish. But if they can speak English as well, it's like I forget all my Spanish. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's the way it goes. And when I moved to Spain, I did not really know any Spanish. I'd studied Spanish for about three years in school. And I'd learned nothing. And I didn't realize that until I was standing there in Spain, realizing that I could say tile and a beer, please, even though I don't drink beer, but I couldn't say help and I'm lost. Um, so you kind of pick it up out of necessity when you need it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Especially 
a lot of places where travelers go, they hear uno mas cerveza or, you know, whatever, more than they hear a yudame, a yudame. <laughs> yeah. And I was standing there lost in the street, surrounded by people that did not know a word of English and I could not ask them to help me. I did learn um, this last time I was in Thailand. I, I learned a bit, uh, I, quite a bit, I should say. And I learned how to say, uh, help me, chui duai. And that's really would, helpful. Yeah, I would use it um, when I would go to the gym with my buddy and the trainer would push me too hard. I would say, <laughs> chui duai, cop, chui duai. That's really good. Actually, what I learned in Thailand was no spicy. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, ped noi. I can't remember what it is now, but I just remember eating too much spicy food and I just could not handle it. <laughs> it gets hot. I, uh, I, there was one night where they really pushed my limits and I, I got horrible hiccups as soon as I tasted this one salad and it was so hot and I kept eating it and I just got the worst hiccups. It was, <laughs> it was hard to breathe. <laughs> Well, in Thailand, you've got a lot of options. So you've got a lot of food that's not spicy as well. But South Korea, they know spicy. I was just walking down a street and I bought some food at one of the food stores. And I just, no spicy. Yeah, 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 no spicy. You sure? It's not spicy. Yeah, 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 no spicy. And I took one bite and I, as I was walking away from the stand. And I just stopped. I was like, a Coke, please, at the next stand. Because it was just. My mouth was on fire. <laughs> so you've been to a bunch of different places around the world. I want to ask you this. If there, let's say there's someone just finished a season working and they had never been out of the country before, but they've mm -hmm. got four months and five grand, where would you sort of steer them as their first place or first itinerary you can do a lot with that money actually especially if you're on a working holiday visa because that money is plenty for flights getting settled and finding a part-time job or even a full-time job so you really have the whole world to choose from but if you haven't been traveling before i would say start off somewhere a bit safer so if you're looking for somewhere where you have a chance to make money, I'd say New Zealand or Australia, you won't have any language issues. There's plenty of seasonal work and you'll find a lot of other travelers. So it's a, it's a good safe place to get started. If, if you're a bit braver, you could definitely do Japan. Um, there's some good ski resorts higher north in the country. So if you like the winter sports, that's a good place to head. You will struggle with language for sure. And you might get a bit of a cultural shock, but you won't be the only foreigner up there. So it, it's not a bad place to start. If you're not looking for any work, and you just want to use that time and money to travel, again, you could really go anywhere. Asia is safe. Asia is safe to travel most of the time. Just make sure you've got your valuables 
you know, where you know where they are. Don't drink irresponsibly and don't do drugs and you're going to be fine. You know, I've never had anything stolen in Asia and I've been in a lot of countries and it's getting easier and easier to travel in Asia. Now, a lot of digital nomads, backpacking is so popular. You can go by air, there are buses, there are trains, it's cheap, the food's awesome. So you just have a lot of ways to go from country to country in Asia. You could do Europe. Uh, you would want to do it on a budget. Um, but there are some, there are some tricks um, to just you know lower your costs. I wouldn't say Africa or South America as a first destination. I'd say get some travel smarts first and make sure you know how to pack and how to travel and just how to get by on your own. And then from there on, you can go to locations that are a bit, you know, out of the, you know, the normal destinations. What's a place that you think is maybe underrated that not a ton of travelers go to? I, it might have changed since I was traveling there, but Myanmar is incredible. You will get food poisoning, though, for sure. There's no way around it. <laughs> um, no, there isn't. There truly is no way around it. You will get food poisoning. It doesn't matter if you don't eat food off the street. If you only eat restaurant food, you're still going to get food poisoning. But it's a beautiful country. They have the most incredible sunsets and sunrises I've ever seen in my life. You've got Old Bagan, which you just do cannot miss but I also did this incredible hike there right after I recovered from food poisoning um, <laughs> um, and it was a it was a three-day hike one night was spent in the jungle camping and the second night we had a homestay in a small village and the the woman that was our guy she was very young and you just pass through these local villages and the nature and countryside and it's it's just incredible. Yeah. Myanmar used to be um, one of those destinations that's underrated. Um, I'd say Cinque Terre in Italy is one of my favorite locations as well. It is getting more popular now and also Corona. So don't go there right this moment. Uh, but it's beautiful. It's right, it's right by the ocean and it's five villages. I think they're medieval villages and they're all very individual. So that's also an incredible location to visit. Though, I mean, Japan is definitely not an underrated country, but a lot of people that go there, they only see Tokyo and Kyoto and Osaka. So I would really just recommend to get out of those big cities and see a bit more of the countryside and you know what's outside of those cities, and it, it will be worth your time. So you... You work mostly remotely uh, translating, correct? Yeah. I also do a lot of writing. What are some of the places that someone could go or what are, if, if there may not be, I don't know. Is there like um, sort of a place to go to find that or to get into that sort of industry? I don't think there is a place to go necessarily. It's just about establishing your niche. Um, if you're an English speaker, 
you've got a lot more competition out there because it's not just your country. You know, you've got Australia, New Zealand, the UK, Canada, the US. You've just got this huge competition in your field. Um, but whatever country you're from, just make sure you find that niche of what you are good at, but also what there is a demand for. Uh, in my case, there's quite a lot of work to do for Swedish writing and just translations between Swedish and English. So I've, I've just found that thing that works for me that I'm pretty good at. And then from there on, just get out there, be professional. Um, there are a lot of sites that can help you get started, like Fiverr and Upwork. Some people end up staying there and keeping you know, their work only on these platforms. And it works for some industries and for other industries, you just cannot find any work there. Other industries, you might be better off starting with an office job and negotiating, working part remotely and then kind of transitioning into fully remote. Um, other jobs, you might not need an office to do them, but it's just how it's always been done. Um, so being a consultant in a certain field is, is just a way to get just away from any kind of office work. But the, the trick is finding that niche that you're very good at and that people actually want to need. And then to be out there and find out where those people and businesses are. Um, for some people, that's on social media. Other people, it's much more traditional and you might be better off with emails or just physical meetings. It's so individual depending on your field. Yeah, for me, I just, I got started on Upwork uh, just by coincidence. And I started with one book translation that just kind of fell into my knee. And then that client then recommended someone that recommended someone that recommended someone and suddenly I had quite a few references and then it got a lot easier to get new and regular clients. And that just kind of was how I built up my business. And then my ex-boyfriend, he was an IT guy and he started working remotely by just pitching it to his company that they had actually a lot to gain from having him, you know, go remote. So he just made his existing job and you know made that work remotely and that worked for him other people take what they've learned uh, from being a personal trainer or a nutritionist and they start their own business and work as a consultant or a private coach and then they build a business from that so there are a few different ways you can go about getting there i think there's quite a few jobs that people are going to realize you can do remotely because of the coronavirus. Yes. And that, that might be a really good shift towards going more remote because I think a lot of companies still have big offices just from tradition because that's how it's always been done. And they feel like they've got a better eye on their workers and who's coming and going and who's more productive and so on and so forth. But the actual job tasks themselves, you might not need to be in that location to perform them. And as you said, this is a time um, where everyone's being tested. I've got 
a friend, he works in bookkeeping and suddenly his company is saying only 50% of the workforce can be in the office at a time. So they're actually switching it up week by week, which means that he's working from home half the time. And that's quite the change. Yeah. And that's, that's a great change, I'm sure. And they're finding out that it works. I mean, companies have a lot to gain on this as well. You know, cheaper rent. They don't need as big of an office, you know, less costs for utilities to keep everything running, less office supplies. And I'm pretty sure there are some studies out there that says that people that get to have more control over their work times and work schedule and where they work from, they're more productive, they're happier, and they're more creative. Uh, so I think a lot of industries will just see that, you know, it's, it's not so bad to just go with the new times on this. Is there, and this, you can pass on this question or take some time to think about it. Is there something that everybody thinks one thing and you think the other? Is there something like everybody gets wrong that you, you know the truth? That's a really difficult question, Joey. Um, I, I don't necessarily know if it's an answer to your question, but it's, it's worth bringing up. Uh, a lot of people want to work remotely just for the, the chance to work remotely. And that's fine. That, that's a great you know, incentive to be able to work from wherever you are. But it's very easy if you're just starting out um, that you get pulled into this digital nomad bubble I get the feeling that a lot of these nomads are targeting other nomads or people that want to be nomads for their business. So it's just this big group of people that are just pitching business ideas and services to each other using the fact that they really want to be able to work remotely or have a business that allows them to travel and and be location independent. Whereas I think if you want to be sustainable and and work online and be able to travel, you you need to find a steady field that works for you. Ideally, you want regular clients, you know, that you have week and after week and month after month that you build a relationship with. If you're targeting new people with the service and it's not working or they just purchase it once, and drop off then that it goes a lot of work goes into that and I'm not sure I believe it's genuine and that's just a feeling I get um, with today's remote workers especially those that label themselves as digital nomads and I'm probably going to get a lot of criticism for saying that I do not have any issues with with digital nomads it's just there's a concern that people that really want to be one or really want to get into this field that they get tricked or used by people that are using them to make it happen for their dream. If you understand what I'm trying to say, Joey. Yeah, absolutely. That is, that's a great point. It's something I, I think a lot of people have, have kind of maybe noticed in the back of their minds, but you see, these this cluster of people that want that nomadic like lifestyle and 10% of them are making it and the other 90% are faking it and it, it's just kind of like 
a king of the hill type thing where only, you know, some amount of them are actually doing it and the rest are just trying to look like it and hoping that they get to that point. Yeah. And it's just, there are no ways really to confirm that someone is and does and possesses the knowledge that they claim. So you've got a lot of these courses, you know, if you take this course, you're going to be awesome at this, or you're going to make this much money, or you're going to get this many clients. And I don't believe in these courses. I've, I've had a look at a few of them, but if you get sucked into that, it's just never ending. Yeah. I was in Rome and with a couple friends and we met this girl at, it's like dinner and she was sitting with us and she was a photographer and she was talking about this guy that was like famous or something. And he had, because of his photography or his website and she's showing it to us. And my, my friend is like, super sarcastic, very skeptical. And she's looking at it and she's like, why does he only have like 50 likes on these different Instagram posts? And then she starts clicking the links and she's like, there's only like five to 10 like interactions on all of these posts on his whole blog. Like somebody that's famous or, you know, somebody that's like way up there to be talked about in this way would have like all these different things. And she's like, show me, you know, show me like, where he's actually worked with brands and like there was, there was just nothing there. And she, I, w- I wouldn't have even gone that route, but she, she's like, she's so funny. And so, yeah, she dug in and we're basically like, yeah, this, I don't think this person is actually, I think it's all front. This person. It's an so, air castle. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. An air castle. That's a great way of putting it. But it's unfortunate because this is also ruining that trust from companies. I mean, again, it really depends on your field and your niche, but you don't necessarily need to have thousands and thousands of followers if you have a very small niche, you know. It just really depends on what you're doing. Maybe if it's a very small niche, you are working together with smaller companies reaching out and having a very good connection with a small but reliable audience. I mean, I one of my clients um, is involved in the field of medical devices. And that's, again, one of those niches that you just, you wouldn't reach out to, you know, a million travelers because that's not your market. So it just really depends on who you want to reach, but it's really unfortunate when people are, are just painting up this image. It's, it's not authentic. It's not realistic. And it's just misleading to a lot of younger people or people that want to get into that field. Uh, They think that it is doable. I can definitely make money off of blogging about traveling. But today the truth is that a lot of people are already doing it. So if you're joining now, you're kind of late in the game. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. The, you know, the traveling and all that stuff, there's so many people in it. And then on the other side, like the medical supplies that somebody would go, Oh, that's dry. Or, you know, that's what, what am I going to do with that? That's the stuff that consistently pays the bills. It is. And people don't think about those everyday things or services because that's just there and they take it for granted 
So whatever you're doing for a living, I'm sure there are some skills in there, some knowledge in there that can be transformed into making a living online and remotely. It doesn't mean you have to drop everything that you used to do and what you have a degree in just to do what everyone else is doing. Actually, I'd say you're much better off taking what makes you you and your skill set unique and transforming that into something because then you are starting to look into your own niche and finding your own market as i said it's is not very glamorous work that i do i sometimes write articles about the best access to use you know or i translate a product description of a motorcycle helmet um two things that are not on the top of my hobby list but that's what I do for a living and there is a demand for it. I'm very good at it. And that allows me to do something that I enjoy and live a life that I want to live. Very well said. What is a big goal you have for the future? I don't like to speak about goals too much before I've accomplished them because that's when you get people saying you just talk a lot, but you're not making it right. happen. But I would like to see Central and South America because I've not been on that side of the world yet. Um, and since I'm newly single, it means that I want to try out a bunch of new cool stuff and exploring a new part of the world is very high on that list. Um, as for work or personal goals, I would really love to find some time to write a book. Uh, and no, Joey, I'm not going to tell you anything about that uh, at this stage. <laughs> too early. I do, I do have a plan. I do have some ideas. Um, but like I said, I don't want to say too much this early on. But I'd really like some time to sit down and, and get that on paper and make that into a book. Um, that and exploring a new part of the world would be the top two on my goal list for now. Looking further ahead, I'm really tempted to eventually get a sailboat. I loved camper vanning, um, but you're kind of limited to how far you can drive and, you know, the continent because there's ocean surrounding you. But I just have this image of a sailboat being as idyllic and peaceful as camper vanning, but you can get much further. You could island hop and you could, you could do the Philippines where I haven't been yet, you know, go around Australia or just that is a future dream. Um, but even for me, that's a bit of a scary dream, sailing alone and across oceans. Um, and it's a big investment. It costs a lot of money to have a boat and to, to do the upkeep. But it's definitely a future goal. Yeah, I, I owned a sailboat for three days. That dream can become a nightmare really quickly. I'm going to have to ask you about that when we're finished, Joey. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, that story. It's called uh, The Dirge of the Trash Fish. It's on the website and in the first issue of the magazine. I, I will have a look at that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, it was a story. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes, you know, your your image, you know, reality doesn't always match up. Right. Yeah. And I, but I do know 
a bunch of uh, people who had, you know, that dream of getting a sailboat and it worked out for them. And I, I've been on their sailboats and they're very nice and they take them down to Belize or wherever else. So, I'd say it's a lifestyle that doesn't fit everyone. I mean, there are some people it's a great match for, but just like everything else, it's, it's not for everyone. Even working remotely isn't for everyone. I've actually heard of a lot of people and they just dreamed about making this happen. And then they did and they realized it's quite stressful. Um, you know, you're pretty much always working because you don't leave your work at the office and go home. Um, there's, it's harder to draw that line between personal and work time. And also you're not as, you know, you don't always know that you have money coming in, especially not if you're a freelancer. So there's that additional pressure for that. And then if you travel too quickly and jump between places too often, you get worn out very quickly. I find that even just traveling and switching locations every three months gets tiring if you don't have any breaks in between, which is why I spend about six months at a time in Japan um, to get some kind of base and you know foundation for what I'm doing. Um, so yeah, it's just that lifestyle isn't for everyone. Some people have transitioned to it, changed their minds and gone back to a steady job because it's safer and you know less stressful and other people like me would not be able to go back to a nine-to-five job yeah it takes an incredible amount of self-confidence and self-sustainability and being able to push yourself and also because I'm sure there's a lot of times where you're not sure how to move forward, but you have to have confidence that once you start moving, you'll keep making the right decisions as well. And some people would much rather a boss tell them what to do. Yeah. And I think this, this is something that is not talked about very much. Everyone's very busy painting this perfect image of their lives, their business, their finances, and they just, put it out there on social media for everyone to see. And people think this is the way it is. It is this perfect. And that's not true. It's not that perfect. Even if you're really happy with your life, you will have some not so great work days. Things are going wrong. You'll have technical difficulties. You lose a client. You'll take on too much work. You'll have internet issues. You know, there, there are just a ton of things that can go wrong when you work remotely, but that's not something that we talk about. And I don't know why, because it is, that's a much bigger part of everyday life working remotely than working from a beach. No one works from a beach. It's too hot. There's a bunch of sand getting at your laptop and your laptop will overheat. And it's just not a realistic image. And With that also, we all have those bad days. I have days where I'm just like lying in bed and I'm like, what have I gotten myself into? I have no confidence in what I'm doing. I'm such a faker. And those are just my weak moments. That's not who I am. We all have those times when we're doubting ourselves and thinking that, oh gosh, this is just not achievable. And maybe that's one day out of 30 and then the rest of the 29 days, we're just kick-ass. 
but it's really just important to lift that up you know we all get anxiety we all get stressed and we all get worried and it's definitely definitely not as perfect as people make it seem she's fired up folks <laughs> i am i just i get really worked up with this i just i see these people you know lying on the beach with a laptop and that just doesn't happen you know that it's the same thing i think with remote work as the body images that are displayed on social media it's just not accurate and it's not healthy to try to make people think that that is reality yeah i agree so a good message and you put it very yeah. well sorry i got really worked up now <laughs> i love it that's what we need <laughs> no i'm i'm very serious i just i meet so many people that just want this and they want it so badly they're just willing to not use their brains to see that it's not that perfect or you are being tricked and i just i don't like seeing that this is one of my like kind of my favorite question i've been asking lately but what is what's a lesson that you you picked up from sweden and britain two separate ones that now later in life you use in kind of help you navigate your adult life? Okay, that is a difficult question, Joey. Um, so I have a background in martial arts, actually. Um, I've been doing kickboxing and Thai boxing since I was 16. Um, and I'm from a bit of a messy family, of a messy area in Sweden. So that kickboxing club or gym became my second family and I'd say they pretty much raised me um, obviously martial arts can help people stay away from trouble but in my case it was a lot more than that I had this incredible instructor that really left an impression on me and he taught me to never give up uh, to never stop until I get where I want to be going. And that's something that he taught me in fighting and in training. And it's also something that I've brought with me into life. And I think that is the lesson that's made me reach a lot of the goals that I've set for myself. You know, not because I'm super confident necessarily or because I have a lot of people supporting me, because I don't. It's more like once I've set that goal, I've been taught to go for it and not stop until I get there. And sometimes even when I've got a day and I'm just not sure why I'm doing it, even when I have those doubts, I'm going to still be doing it if for nothing else than for the reason that I should, <laughs> even if I can't remember why. Um, and I think that that's a really, really important lesson in life. Um, and what I've learned from England uh, has to do with my burnout, actually. And it's to know the difference between quitting and reevaluating something. And that's, that's something I'm still practicing. But I get very, very focused on a goal that I've set. And it can be difficult for me to realize that this is not actually what I want anymore. And if what I want has changed, it's not quitting to change tracks. It's just, this is no longer the best path for me. 
Um, and one of those examples is um, when I was a student, I dreamt about becoming an archaeologist. I grew up watching Jurassic Park and I had this amazing image of digging up dinosaur bones that my student counselor crushed immediately and I ended up not studying archaeology. So last year I thought, you know what, I'm actually going to go for it. I'm going to enroll into an archaeology course through a university and see if this is what I want because I wasn't quite happy with it just being dropped without trying or exploring this option. So I did. I started this course in archaeology and I was studying that on half time. I was doing my translation degree full time and I was working full time. So I was already stretching myself thin. And after a few months of studying archaeology, I realized, nope, my student counselor was right. This is not for me. <laughs> and <laughs> at, that, at that point, I could have pushed on and just finished it for the sake of finishing it. Or I could just realize that, no, this isn't for me, even though I really wanted it to be. And I can take that extra time and I can reinvest it into something that is more in line with what I want. And that is the decision I made at that point. And I'm still practicing on integrating that in life. But yeah, those are my two lessons. Yeah, that is a, that's a very hard lesson to learn and even harder to implement correctly into life. It's a fine line between giving up and realizing that, nope, this wasn't it. Well, thank you. Yeah, those were great answers. Thank you, Joey. And thank you for coming on the podcast. It was great to talk to you, Vicki. Thank you, Joey. It's been a pleasure. I hope to get a chance to contribute again to the magazine because I think it's awesome. Yeah. That's it. That's the episode. The seasonals are Kelly Mogg, Ryan Deininger, me, Joey Ravinsky. The theme song by Ryan Deininger, Joe Williams, Louis Leva, Chappie, Thomas Hamilton. Follow us on Instagram at the seasonals underscore. Like us on Facebook. Listen to our next episode. That's it. We're out. Yeah.